Lord, we do thank you for this church. We thank you for this opportunity to be together, to learn about you, to learn about your word, to learn about the things that you have spoken to us, that our lives would be full, that our lives would be solid and strong, built on, as we just sang, on your foundation. Lord, that, that no matter what comes our way in life, and we know hard things are going to come in this life, but we would know that we are rooted and grounded and anchored in you, even when the storms of life blow through. And so, Lord, today, as we continue to expand our minds, Lord, we ask that you'd also expand our souls. Lord, this isn't just for us to get information in our head. This is that our lives would be transformed by your living word. And so today, Lord, we pray that that's what would happen, that as we study this, these principles, these examples, these things that we've learned that, that happened, historical events that happened 2,000 years ago, that still impact us even here today, Lord, we pray that those things would radically transform our hearts and lives. So we thank you for this opportunity and thank you for being here with us today, Lord. Speak to us, we pray. Amen. We're going to jump right into Acts chapter 12 here today with verse 1. And here's what it says. It says, About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Now, let's just stop there for a second. Because when we're talking about Herod, you see that name. If you've read the Bible very much, you're like, I hear that name. That name comes up here and there. But the thing about Herod is... He's a little bit confusing, all right? And the reason that that name Herod is confusing is because there's actually five of them in the Bible, okay? Five different Herods. And, and you know, I realize that when you, the Bible's a big book. There are a lot of characters in it. Start with Jesus, learn about Jesus, and then just add other characters to it as you go, all right? But for those of you who've got the Jesus part down and you've got some other characters, let's talk about Herod for just a second. Because like I said, in Scripture, there's, there's five of them, all right? The, 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 the first one that, that pops up in the New Testament is a man named Herod the Great, all right? Herod the Great, he was the first one. Herod the Great was the Herod that was alive when Jesus was born. Herod the Great is the one that the wise men came to and said, where is this king of the Jews being born? Remember that in the Christmas story? That's that Herod. And you're like, wow, this Herod guy keeps popping up. Well, he doesn't because that Herod actually died when Jesus was still very little. All right, that was Herod the Great. He was the the builder, Herod the Great. Um, But after that, the next Herod that that we see in Scripture, there's a mention of one called Herod Archelaus, but uh, that's the one who was around after Herod the Great had died and when... when, uh, uh, Mary and Joseph had been in Egypt and they were going to come back into the Judean area and they find out that this second Herod has taken the place of the first Herod who was out to kill Jesus, that they went on up to Nazareth instead of coming into the area of Bethlehem where they had been. All right, so that's the second one. But then the, the next one that comes up is Herod Antipas. All right, third Herod, he's the Herod that killed the John the Baptist. So if you're like Herod the Great, the one that killed all the babies that was with the wise men, is that the same guy? No, different one. All right, the third one already that's popped up. And then we have this Herod, this Herod the king. His name was Agrippa, Agrippa the first. Because the fifth 
Herod that comes up is actually Agrippa II, not to be confused with this one, the first. You see why this is confusing? (laughs) There's all these Herods, and it's not even like it's great-grandfather and father and son and all that. No, there's nephews and there's uncles, and it's, it's a mess. And when you look at that whole family tree, it's a real mess. But just trust me, five Herods, this is Herod Agrippa, and the good part about this Herod Agrippa is historically, we know exactly when Herod Agrippa was in power. So it gives us a date here for Acts chapter 12. We know Acts chapter 12 happened between 41 and 44 AD. All right, because that's the only time that Agrippa, the one, you go through all the historical records, Agrippa um, ruled over this area for, for only three years. He actually died a tragic death that we're going to see at the end of the story here today um, when he was only 34 years old. All right, and, and it's, it's uh, well documented. Herod Agrippa was a close friend to the emperor at the time, Caligula. If you've studied Roman history at all, you've heard about how wicked Caligula was. He was this really, really obscene guy. But he was a close friend with that particular emperor. And Caligula uh, died, which again, the way that all the Caesars interacted with each other and poisoning each other and murdering this one and taking that one's wife and all, it's, it's a mess. It's a serious soap opera if you study that time of Roman history. But Caligula had died and the new uh, emperor who took control, Claudius, was connected to Agrippa. And Agrippa had supported Claudius. So because of that, Agrippa had a whole lot of power. For just being a little regional king that was put in place by Rome, um, he had a ton of power and a ton of freedom because he was so close to the royal family of the emperors. All right? And, and so because of that, he's got some power to lay violent hands on people, as it says there in verse 1. And so that's where we're at here. That's who this Herod is. And here's what it says in verse 2. It says, And he, Agrippa, Herod Agrippa, killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. And this was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Don't miss that little line there, all right? That's going to be important to what we look at here today. So Herod, Agrippa, this guy who's buddies with the emperor, has got basically the freedom to do whatever the heck he wants in his province. All right, typically, as we've seen before, uh, even with Jesus, remember, the Jews really had to politically manipulate things around that they could execute Jesus. They had to figure out what rules he was breaking of their own law and then take him to Pilate, who was the Roman governor, and then try to convince Pilate to go on and crucify him. It took a lot. But now, this guy Herod, who is not a direct Roman official like Pilate was, a governor, he's he's this regional king that's been put in place. He knows, I'm buddies with Claudius. I got the emperor on my side. I can do whatever I want. And essentially, that's what he did. And so, here, Agrippa gets a hold of James, who is one of the twelve, one of the twelve disciples of Jesus. He gets a hold of James and he executes him. He's like, you're a Christian, and I'm taking you out. And remember, James, this James was, he was part of the trio that was closest to Jesus. Jesus called his 12, 
but then he also had a group of three that sometimes we see throughout Scripture that Jesus would do something. He was especially close to three, Peter, James, and John. James and John were brothers. And Peter, James, and John were with Jesus when he went onto the Mount of Transfiguration and was, was transformed before them. Peter, James, and John, there were, there were various instances through the life of Jesus where, where it, he just took these three specifically and poured into them. All right? That's the James that Agrippa, King Agrippa, gets a hold of and, and murders. All right? So James was the first of the 12 to be martyred for their faith, executed for their faith. Remember, we had Judas who committed suicide. But James is the first one who's executed for his faith. Now, why did Agrippa even do this? What was Herod's thing about that? Um, what, what, what we learn from history is that Herod was a strong proponent of Jewish nationalism. He was the king of the Jews at this time, and he was all about nationalism, of Jewish nationalism. And the Christians had been persecuted. Remember, we've already seen that. They'd been persecuted, and at first they were seen as a sect of the Jews, but then the, the Jews, the, the, the religious leaders were like, we don't want to have anything to do with them. Don't call them that they're part of us. They're their own thing. They're doing their own deal, and we're going to persecute them, and we're going to purge them out of our community. And so Herod just grabbed a hold of that with his own wickedness. He's like, yeah, we're going to be Jews, and none of this Christian stuff, I'm going to kill these, these, these Christians when I can, get, when I can find them. And so that's why he killed James. And with that Jewish support, now he's like, well, who else can I get? Ooh, I'll go get Peter. Everybody knows about Peter. Let's go get Peter. And he does. He arrests Peter and he throws him in prison. And the reason he didn't kill him immediately is because it tells us here what's going on is the, the, the feast of the Passover. And you've heard probably about the Passover quite a bit in the Bible. It was a Jewish holiday commemorating the time where, when, when uh, God was sent Moses to get the people out of captivity in Egypt and, and had to go into the Pharaoh and there was all the ten plagues and all that that took place. And then the very last one was the death of the firstborn. And he, and he told all of his people, he said, what you're going to do is you're going to kill a Passover lamb. You're going to take the blood of that lamb and you're going to put it on your doorposts. And the angel of death is going to come through Egypt and he's going to pass over all of the homes that have the blood on the doorpost. But everybody else is going to lose the firstborn in every single family. Right? And then ultimately, that was the, the, the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, where Pharaoh finally was like, all right, get out of here. All right? That Passover was a holiday, a Jewish holiday, that continued to be celebrated for all of the centuries after that. And, and it was a big deal. And so what would happen is on Passover is they would have the Passover meal, which was this special meal that would kick off a week-long holiday. All right? I think in, in the old days, they knew how to do holidays. It was none of this one-day thing where you get a four-day, three-day weekend. It was like a week. And, and that's what they would do. They'd start with the Passover meal together. And then from that point, for the next seven days, it was the, the days of unleavened bread. The days of this Passover celebration. And in that time, there was nobody doing any sort of work. You definitely weren't having court cases and uh, going through all of that. Instead, it was just this time of holiday and celebration. And so, he arrests Peter, but he arrests him too close to the Passover. And he's like, ah, no big deal. I'm just going to throw him in jail. I'll leave him there for a week. And then when it's all over and the holiday's finished, then we'll get back to business and I'll execute him. All right? That's what's going on. But what he didn't realize is he was, it was verse 5, that he was giving some space for the people 
to begin to pray to God for Peter. And that's what happens, this this key ingredient in the story. Look at verse 6. It says, Now when Herod was about to bring him out, so it's now time, the feast is wrapped up, he's about to bring him out. On that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries before the door regarding the prison. Now, what's the big threat about Peter? Because guys, this isn't like a regular way of handling a, a simple prisoner in a Roman jail. It's like toss the guy in and we lock the door and walk away. What's the big deal? Well, here's the big deal. Peter was a trophy for Herod. He was like, I got Jesus's guy, the leader of the 12, and I am not going to let him get away. This guy, is, it's going to be awesome. All the Jews are going to love me when I take this guy down. They may have taken out Jesus, but I get his second in command. I've got Peter. And so what he does is he literally chains a soldier to both sides of Peter. Two chains, one chain to one guard, one chain to the other guard. Locks the doors, puts them behind guard, puts sentries at the gate. He's like, you're not getting out of here. I'm hanging on to this one. And... I mean, let's give Herod a little bit of uh, credit here. Uh, because the last time that Peter was in jail by the Jews, what we saw earlier in the book of Acts, Peter and the rest of the disciples got taken in. And guess what? In the middle of the night, they got busted out somehow. Because the, 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 the high priests and all the leaders come in to try these guys that they arrested yesterday. And they walk in and the prison's empty. And they're like, what happened to these guys? What happened to Peter? How'd they get out of here? And everybody's like, oh, we don't know. It just happened. And well, did they escape? No, they're actually in the temple preaching. Okay, and then they bring him back in, right? So Herod's like, I'm not taking chances with this guy. We're locking him down, maximum security, and I'm going to do this, and it's going to be incredible. All right, in verse 7, here's what happens. So Peter's locked up, maximum security, verse 7. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. Now he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city, and it opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. All right, so you see what's happening here? This is the middle of the night. He's chained up. He's also dead asleep. I don't know if I would be sleeping as soundly as Peter was, knowing that I've come to the end of death row, (laughs) thinking, oh man, this is it. This is my last night here on earth. I don't know if I'd be able to do what Peter did. He was just out. He He was sleeping, no problem. And then a light turns on. And remember, this is pre electricity, guys. Um, but all of a sudden, the cell just lights up. And so that's an interesting thing. But nobody else wakes up, only Peter, supernaturally here. And this angel appears. Now, remember, 
Peter saw a lot of extraordinary things in his lifetime. Peter was the one, one of the ones who saw Jesus walk on water across the Sea of Galilee. Peter is the one who saw demons cast out and people healed. Peter's the one who saw those who were blind regain their sight. Peter saw, as I already mentioned, Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration when the voice of God spoke and, and Jesus just lit up with this bright glory. Right? Peter saw extraordinary things. Just a couple of weeks ago, we saw Peter watch, see this vision of a giant sheet being lowered down out of heaven and a voice from God speaking to him, you know, rise and eat. Right? Peter saw radical stuff in his time. Radical stuff. And for him, um, it, it almost seems like the extraordinary was somewhat ordinary. He was at the spot where he's like, okay, yeah, I'm having another vision here. What's God going to tell me about this time? Well, here I am, locked up in prison, guard on this side, guard on that side. What's he going to say? I mean, gosh, I thought this is the end of me. Like, what else is there really to tell me? It's like, I'll see you in a minute, Jesus, no problem. Like, let's just wait this thing out. And that's what he thought. He thought, I'm just seeing another vision. It's not until he's walking down the street in the cold of the night, fully dressed, and the angel disappears that he realizes, wait a minute, I'm actually out here. I've actually been freed. This isn't a vision. This is, this is physically happened. Oh, I've been rescued. And here's what it says in verse 12. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. That's John Mark. He's the author of the Gospel of Mark. Where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway... A servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, get a load of this, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, well, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now, just to clarify for you here, Peter already knew that James was dead. This isn't the the same James that Peter's telling them to talk about. The James that he's talking about here is the brother of Jesus who was a leader in the church in Jerusalem. All right, so we have James the Apostle and then James the leader of the church. All right, James the Apostle's already been killed. But he's saying, hey, go tell the leader of the church that this has happened. All right? I think this is such a cool retelling of this event. I, I think this would have been a fun story for Luke, the author of this book, to research. Because that's one of the things that we understand about Luke who wrote the Gospel of Acts. So many of these things were, were not firsthand. Um, we'll see where it shifts later in Acts to firsthand events where Luke was actually with a lot of the things happening here. But in the early stories, even up to here, Luke wasn't yet, he wasn't part of that group. So what Luke did as a researcher is he went around and interviewed the people that were alive and that were part of these things. And I've got a feeling this would have been one of the best ever. 
where he goes in and he's talking to people who were there at that prayer meeting and saying, tell me, now what, how did that look? What was happening? What were you guys praying about? It was the middle of the night and then Peter came through and, and what happened? And they're like, oh, you've got to go talk to Rhoda. <laughs> because, you know, she was the servant there and she did this and we were like, this girl's just delirious. She hasn't had enough sleep tonight. Like, what's, she's saying Peter's here. This is ridiculous. We all know he's locked up. That can't be happening. Um, but, but it is. That's what's, what's going on. These devoted friends of Peter were committed to do all they could possibly do for him, including praying all night long for his deliverance. And so Rhoda comes, she hears the voice, and she just leaves him outside. She's like, she's so excited, instead of letting him in and getting him into safety of the house, she's like, I gotta go tell everybody. (laughs) They're praying about this, and it's happening. So she runs in and, and explains this. Now, who knows what this whole thing about, well, it's his angel is all about. Um, we can have all sorts of speculations that some people thought, well, maybe they killed him in the night and it's his spirit that's come in. Or others say, well, maybe they thought it was his guardian angel coming. But why would his guardian angel speak in his voice? That's weird. Like, we don't know. And it doesn't really matter because the, the point is he was there in the flesh. Peter was actually here. And notice it amazed everyone in attendance. Their prayers played a part in Peter's deliverance, but it still caused amazement in them, and that's going to be important here in a minute. Now, I think that the reason that Peter went to the prayer meeting was this. Peter knew he was free. He knew he wasn't safe in the city, that he needed to get out, but he still felt like it's really important that I go and tell these people that are praying for me right now that God's heard their prayer. Why? Because I think he wanted to encourage them and strengthen their faith. And, and, and he wanted them to know very clearly, hey guys, it wasn't that I bribed a guard. It wasn't that somebody came and busted me out. It wasn't that I found a, a hole in the back of the... Like, God did this. And God did this in a direct response to these prayers that you have been praying. Now, when we read the book of Acts... This is one of those places. We see extraordinary events happen. All right? They were extraordinary times here in the book of Acts. But also, let's not lose sight of the fact that the church was using extraordinary methods. Because that's what prayer is. Prayer is an extraordinary thing. What was their main weapon? Uh, you know, was it the power of this grassroots militia that they had built up? It was like, oh, no problem, we'll just break Peter out. You know, we're going we're gonna to circumvent Rome and we're going to take him over. No, it wasn't anything like that. Was it uh, their deep political connections where they said, oh, well, we'll just, you know, we'll lobby for this or for that and we'll shift some money in this direction and we'll get him out that way. No, it wasn't some super strategy that they had. The method that they were using was prayer. I'm lovingly referring to this little group as Pete's prayer team today. They basically said, we're going to pray for Peter, we're going to band together, and we're going to pray. And we're going to ask God to do something radical. And I think that this story gives us valuable insight into how prayer works. Uh, We see there in verse 5, it says that they were praying earnestly. They were, they were serious about this prayer, okay? This wasn't the kind of thing where they all gathered together and said, hey, Peter's in, in, in prison. Uh, let's just say, hey, God, break him out and go home. 
That's not what was going on. They were, they were really invested in this. They were investing themselves in it. It was all night long. Peter's not even still awake praying, God rescue me. Peter's like, I'm out. Somebody else is praying for me. It's good. So all night long these people are praying with conviction. But I do want you to notice this. They weren't convinced that God was going to answer with a miracle. They weren't. Why would I say that? Well, because if they really believed a miracle was about to happen, I don't think they would have been surprised when Peter showed up at the door. If they had already known, oh, we're going to make this happen, and we know God's going to answer us with a miracle, they wouldn't have been like, it's his angel. No, they would have been like, well, finally, let the guy in. Come on, God, what took so long? That's not their attitude at all. They're amazed. They're like, whoa, this is what we were praying about, and this is what actually happened. This is incredible. I think that some people today, hopefully not here in this church, but definitely in some churches, would criticize Pete's prayer team. And they'd criticize them by saying they didn't have enough faith to truly expect a miracle. And guys, I think that's just poor theology. It's just bad theology. Faith itself is a gift from God. And this idea that we're supposed to work ourselves up into this this frenzy of faith to earn God's attention is just plain wrong. That's not how it works. Our faith is revealed when we are willing to extend ourselves toward God even when we have no idea how he will resolve the situation. That's actually a prayer of faith. Do you understand that? I'm going to read it again. Our faith is revealed when we are willing to extend ourselves toward God even when we have no idea how he will resolve the situation. They didn't know how God was going to resolve things and solve things, but they knew that he was the one to do it. Faith is trusting who he is and placing ourselves in his hand. Uh, There's a very well-known story in the book of Genesis. And uh, when we went through Genesis as a church, we we saw it and studied it a little bit. You might have heard of of it and remember it. But there's a, a story in Genesis where Abraham is called by God to go and sacrifice his son Isaac. Do you remember that story? And it's a really radical thing because Isaac was the son of promise. Isaac was a miracle baby. Isaac had been given to Abraham and Sarah when they were old people. A hundred years old was Abraham when Isaac was born. All right? And, And this was this child that was given to them by God, the promise of God, this amazing thing. But then, as he's a bit older... God actually calls Abraham and says, Abraham, I have something for you to do. It's going to be hard, but I want you to do it. I want you to take this son that you love so much, this son that I gave you as a miracle, and I want you to take him up on this mountain and you're going to sacrifice him as a burnt offering. Meaning you're going to kill him and you're going to light his body on fire on an altar. I mean, radical, ridiculous request from God. But as the story goes, what we see is that Abraham obeys. He follows through with it. He has no idea what God is going to do. God doesn't say, say now I'm going to ask you a really radical thing, but I'm going to do this really cool thing at the very end. 
So just hold on for that part. But we'll write about it later and everybody will be impressed. It'll be really great, Abraham. No, there's none of that. Abraham had no idea what God was going to do. He believed that God would provide some sort of lamb for sacrifice, is what it tells us. But all he knew was, I have to trust God in faith. I don't know how he's going to resolve this. Maybe he's going to raise my son up from the dead. Maybe he's going to give me another son. I don't get this. I don't understand, but I'm just going to do it. And what we see in that was it is an example of faith. And that's what the scripture tells us in it. Is that his faith was revealed through this process. His faith was revealed there. He trusted who God is and placed himself and even his son who he loved so much in God's hand. He believed God could, but he didn't know if he would. And Jesus taught us that God really is in control, even when it doesn't feel that way. It's, it's, it's funny, uh, Dave just mentioned this as he was praying. Matthew 10, 28-31, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. The father's paying attention. He knows what he's doing. He really is in tune to your life and the stuff that's happening. And fear, that's what he says, don't fear the other stuff, the things of this earth. Fear the Lord. Fear can be one of the greatest enemies of our prayer life because we are afraid to ask God for something because we're afraid that either he won't hear us or that he's going to say no. And, and we don't want to be disappointed by God. So it slows us down when we pray for things. When something big comes our way in life and we're like, I should pray about that. But what if God says no? What if it doesn't work out how I'm wanting it to? How, how am I going to feel? Is this God just a fairy tale anyway? Should I really be trusting him in this? But the Bible makes it plain that he will not ignore his children. He hears you. 1 John 5, 14 and 15 says, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests we have, we have asked of him. Now, it doesn't mean that he won't tell us no sometimes. In fact, I've got a pretty good suspicion that this same group of people probably had gathered together and prayed for James. I wouldn't even be surprised to find out that they had spent all night praying for James before he was executed by Herod. There's an, another story in the Gospels um, when Jesus goes to visit a family um, that he's very close to in Bethany, uh, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And it's, it's, uh, you can read about it in the Gospels. And unfortunately, Lazarus, the, the brother, they were siblings, those three, Lazarus had died, and when Jesus comes, he comes a couple days late, and he comes, and he talks to Mary, and Mary, he has this, this interaction with Mary where Mary says, Lord, if you had just been here, if you had just been here earlier, this would have all been fixed. This would have all been okay. 
You would have been able to heal Lazarus. He wouldn't have died. We wouldn't all be in mourning and sorrow right now. And what does Jesus say? He's like, I understand. I know how you feel. I know Jesus himself was crying when when he had heard that, that Lazarus was dead. It's like, I feel the pain with you. But God has a plan. He has a plan. And Mary's like, I don't get the plan. And he's like, Mary, there's a resurrection coming. She's like, yes, someday. But ultimately, what happens? Jesus says specifically, I'm glad I wasn't here. (sighs) What? That had to hurt so bad. I'm glad I wasn't here so that God's plan would be revealed this time. And what happens in that? The radical thing happens where Lazarus is raised from the dead and comes out. And it just blows everybody's mind. It's one of Jesus' last big miracles, a miracle of resurrection before he's to be crucified, pointing to what God was about to do with him. God has a plan. God is around. But here's the thing. Why do we then even pray at all? If God has a plan, which he does, and if God is all-powerful, which he is, then why does prayer even matter at all? You ever ask that question? I'm glad you did today. It's a good question to ask. What can a fragile human do? What's the point of praying? Here's what it is, guys. In God's great glory, He has chosen to include and involve human beings in His work on earth. He didn't have to. But he's done it that way. He involves people, mortal, fragile, imperfect people, to work with him in his perfect plan on earth and in our lifetimes. And he doesn't just reveal his work to us. He doesn't just say, hey, take a look at what I'm doing. He invites us to participate in what he is doing. 1 Corinthians 3.9 says, For we are God's fellow workers, We're working with him. We're invited to take part in what God is doing in the world. And prayer, in prayer, what is actually happening? Because the the most simple form of prayer, and by the way, every human being prays. Atheists even pray. Uh, They don't know who or what they're praying to. They may be praying to themselves, but people pray. It's just part of who we are. But the the simplest form of prayer is asking some great power, some higher power for something, right? That's the whole AA uh, 12-step programs. It's like trust in a higher power and ask them to help you out. (laughs) And and so people will throw out a prayer. They just say, God, help me. Uh, God, I need this. God, I need that. God, fix this, fix that. They throw out a prayer. That's good. We're we're told to do that. Pray. Let God know your petitions. But prayer, a deeper level of prayer, is actually conversation with God. Where we speak and we listen. Where God speaks and God listens. Right? That's what prayer actually is meant to be. It's this conversation that's happening. And in that interaction with God, that conversation with God, we are being transformed through a relationship with Him. All right? So that's what's happening in prayer. All sorts of things are happening in prayer. Now, stick with me for a minute here because I'm going to go deep level, okay? 
and you're already like, you've already been deep level. Are you kidding me? Okay, well, we're going deeper for just a second. It won't, it won't be long. So if this is painful for some of you, um, stick with me. We'll come back out in a second. But um, one of the ways to help us get an understanding of prayer and how it really works scripturally, um, there's a, an author named Tyler Statton, and in his book on prayer, he actually borrows something from another author, Eugene Peterson, who describes prayer as what happens in the middle voice, okay? And this is going to be very nerdy, and we're going to geek out. If any of you are English teachers, you're going to love this part. The rest of us are going to be like, oh my gosh, I'm in English class. All right, here's what you need to understand. In, in language, when we talk, all right, there are, there are three voices. There's what's called the, the active voice, the middle voice, and the passive voice, all right? And this is what that means. In the active voice, I, the subject, I do something. I perform an action, okay? I'm the one that initiates this. I'm, I'm the actor in that. That's the active voice, okay? In the passive voice, I am being acted upon. Something happens to me. There's something outside of me that happens to me, and I receive whatever it is that happens, okay? So the active voice, I do something. The passive voice, something happens to me. But there's a third voice, which is called the middle voice. And what the middle voice is, I am joining the action of another. All right, I did not initiate the action, but I'm joining in and becoming an active participant with that person. All right, that's what the middle voice is in grammar. That's where prayer fits. I didn't start all of this happening, but I'm joining in with it. I'm participating in it. All right? That's prayer. What's happening in prayer is it's not that I'm saying, here it is, God, take my, my wish list and fix it. That would just be me praying only in the active voice. And it's not, well, I'm just here and whatever you say I'm going to do, I'm a robot and I'm just going to listen to however you do it. That's the passive voice. It's not that. Real prayer, real conversation with God is I'm entering into what you are doing and you are allowing me to be part of this and I'm joining in with you in what you're doing. That is how Jesus prayed and how he taught us to pray. In John 5, 19 to 20, so Jesus said to them, and if you've ever read this verse before, you might be like, what does this mean? This is what it means right here. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son... That's himself, Jesus, can do nothing of his own accord. What? Jesus is saying this. Jesus says, I can't do anything. You're Jesus. No, I can't do anything of my own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these he will show him so that you may marvel. Well, where did Jesus see what the Father was doing? In his prayer life. That's where Jesus went all the time when when everybody was looking for Jesus and he's out by himself. What's he doing? He's praying. When Jesus gets up early, when everybody else is still asleep, and what's it tell us? He goes and prays. Why does Jesus have to pray? He's Jesus. Jesus is praying because he was fully human like us. Yes, he's fully divine, but he's also fully human. And what is he doing when he's praying? He's conversing with his father. 
He's interacting with God. And he's actually being told, here's what I'm doing, Jesus. And he's inviting him in. That's the middle voice. I'm now entering in with the work that the Father is doing. That's what I'm doing too. If you want to become like Jesus, you need to make prayer a priority, just like he did. It's actually his most recorded spiritual practice in Scripture, prayer. And when you do, you're entering into the work of God in the world. So prayer changes us and it changes the world around us. Prayer directly influences the spiritual world, which influences the physical world. Matthew 7, 7 to 11, Jesus said, Ask and it will be given to you. How are we asking God something? Through prayer. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? It's a call to prayer. Here's another one, James 5. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. If is anyone cheerful, let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He's just human like us. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruits. Now, here's the thing. Most of us in this room, and I know a lot of you pretty well, most of us probably already believe what I've told you today. Okay? You came to church, and your pastor said, you should pray. And you're like, yeah, I know. (laughs) Of course I should. I should pray. But really, you know, if we had given a little survey at the beginning of the service that said, do you believe that prayer matters? Most of you probably would have said, yeah, I think it matters. Prayer prayer matters. And you also know that you will grow spiritually if you prioritize prayer. But I don't know how many of us are actually doing it. And there's a difference when you believe something versus you actually do it. Most of us believe it's good to eat right. Most of us believe it's good to exercise. Right? Most of us believe it's probably not great to binge on TV shows. But what are we doing with it? And guys, I know that simply by taking a look at myself. So before you think I'm just, you know, coming down on you, I know by looking at myself. So here's the the blunt pastor questions for you today. As we start to wrap up here. Number one, how is your prayer life? How is it? Because I had to be honest with myself this week as I was thinking about it. It's like, man, I don't know that I'm up for an all-night prayer meeting. I don't know if that's where my prayer life is right now. I'm like, oh yeah, let's do it, guys. 12 hours straight. And then I want to ask you another question because, remember, we're a community together. We're the church together in this. 
And I want to ask us the hard question also is, as a church, have we maybe gotten a little drowsy in the way that we pray? As a community? And if so, it's time for us to wake up. It's time for us to stir that up. You may not know this, and I think it's great today um, because it was such a good example. Every Sunday morning at 9.15, a group of us, whoever's here at that time, people that have been setting up, people that have been helping move things around, at 9.15, before the service, service starts at 9.30, okay? Before that service at 9.15, we all gather uh, today, um, we, we gathered, I'm sorry, at 9 o'clock, 9 o'clock. I'm saying, I, I don't even know. See, uh, we, we gather together at 9, and from 9 to 9.15, before the service starts at 9.30, we pray at 9 a.m. And today, um, it, was, it was great. We had a really rich time of prayer together, so I, I'm glad for that. Um, because otherwise people might think, oh man, our prayers weren't very good this morning, and so the pastor's like on us. No, that's not the case at all. I just want everyone to know. Guys, here's an opportunity to pray as a church. You're all invited. You don't have to have some other job that you're doing before 9 o'clock. If you want to come right at 9 o'clock, come, pray, join in. And for those of you who do come on a regular basis to that time, pray. Pray out loud. You don't have to wait for the people who usually pray to pray. Go for it. Engage yourself. Do it. Participate. All right? Um, And that's just an open invitation to all of you. Not only that, another um, time uh, through our service that that we've um, tried to build in opportunities for for prayer together as a church is uh, what I usually refer to as the response time, usually at the end of the service. All right? And, you know, when we first started the church, I really had high hopes for the response time. You know, I, I envisioned this time where we're all just engaging in worship and interacting with God together and we're all just passionately seeking him and in prayer at times we're just praising God at the top of our lungs other times maybe we're kneeling before the Lord just in in silence a a time we're really interacting where we're praying with one another where healings would be taking place where people would be moved to just give where we'd celebrate communion together and God's presence would be among us what we found is that is really hard to orchestrate. That's really hard to get a group of people together to do that, to be there. But that doesn't mean that we can't grow into it, that we can't expand our hearts for that. Because like I said, when we think about that, when we think about what that's like, most of us would all say, yeah, that's what we need. That's what I want. That's what I'd like to see. I want to engage in that way. I want people around me that are passionate about God We've got to stir that up in some way. We, we, we can do it. And I think that the place where that all begins is with prayer. It's going to continue on in prayer, but it begins with prayer. It's individuals devoting themselves to pray and finding others to join them and then allowing that to spill out into the rest of the church. And that's what I've been praying for this week. And I'm going to continue to pray that, that God would raise up some people in our church to step into those places of prayer. So join me in that. When you think about your church body and you think about what happens in this service, when you think about how we want to interact with God, how we want to see God move among us, be praying for those things, asking God to do that. 
God's not sitting up there in heaven waiting for just, oh, your pastor needs to be the one to, you know, check this off. No way. He's looking for all of us to be involved. Um, and, and so we're going we're gonna to finish up our service here today. I know I've gone a little bit long. Um, Dave, if you'd come back up here. We're, Dave's over there. Um, here's, we've, got, we've got a couple more verses I'm going to look at here real fast because I told you we'd get this far. Um, we're just going to read them together. Verse 20 says this in Acts 12. Acts 12, verse 20. It says, Now Herod, because we need to hear the end of Herod here. Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came with him to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. They're basically trying to butter him up. They're flattering him, okay? And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. It doesn't tell us that God struck him dead for executing James. It doesn't tell us that God struck him dead for arresting Peter. It wasn't revenge. He was struck down because he tried to take God's glory for himself. Pretty radical thing. And history tells us he was only 34 years old when he died at this point. It was actually this big games that he was putting on in honor of Claudius, the emperor. And there in front of everybody, it says, that's what the people started chanting. He's got the voice of a god because they really wanted his food. And so they're doing this, and he's like, yeah, check me out. And God's like, eh, nope, you're done. All right, well, here's what we're going to do now as we we finish up our service. Um, Dave's going to lead us in a a song of worship to just give us an opportunity to respond a little bit and process this together. And and at the end of of that song, I'm going to have a couple people come up here and... um, we just did a message on prayer. We need to have some people pray. <laughs> so I've asked a couple of people to come up here and pray. And they're just going to lead us in prayer. And then I'm going to come back up at the very end. And we're going to close with the Lord's Prayer together here today. So let's move into a time of reflection and response. And uh, spend some time speaking with the Lord. Asking Him to give you insight and direction into your life. And, uh, and, and let's uh, wrap up our service this way.